You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 5th, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. Yo. So have you guys heard about this, the Starlink fiasco? Starlink? Yes. Oh, yeah. Starlights? Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. Elon Musk was sending up all these uh, global satellites that, that are going to give people cell service anywhere on the planet. Right. Yeah. However. But they're really bright. The satellites are bright. Too bright. And yeah, so oh, imagine yeah, yeah. imagine twelve thousand twelve thousand satellites in the sky. Wow. That are as bright as bright stars. Oops. That's like four times as many naked eye visible stars. Right. Yeah, that's not okay. Well, why are they so much more bright than other conventional that's satellites? That's a good question. Because LED lights, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> don't they have a the re- dimmer switch on those? They could turn reflective, them down or something. Reflective surface, uh, surface, Bob. It could be, um, you know, like the the orbit that they're in is is catching more sun, or you know, well, I don't know, man. It could they be couldn't anything. spray paint these things black before they went up or something. Oh know. boy, covered them in so, dirt. Who knows? It's actually a lot worse than I was. I was been reading a lot about it because if you're taking any kind of timed exposure. There are Oops. satellites streaking through your field all the time, and that yeah, ruins 12, the image. So, so astronomers are "quote unquote" panicking, you know, according to the you know, hyped reports. But yeah, I wonder what's going to happen with that. Well, I mean, I I would look at it like it's one of the things that happens that that makes international rules come into existence, right? Like I'm sure they have some type of thing there, but maybe it wasn't as detailed as it needs to be, you know, like they have to really quantify the hell out of that, right? Mm-hmm. Like it has to be this many lumens, you know, worth of light reflection and blah, blah, blah. And what could we do about it? We're not good at deorbiting things. Well, they haven't, they haven't well, launched all of them yet. They just launched some of them into the sky. Well, you said 12,000? That would be the full employment. Yeah, How many did they launch? Would that take decades? Yeah. 12,000? No. No. no, they're launching they're hundreds at once, Bob. They're small, Bob. Are, yeah. they, are, they, are they nanosats? No, 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 but they're, I think, if I remember I correctly, say that word. No, they're the size of a, <laughs> you know, size of a big grapefruit, I thought. Let me look it up. Hold on. I went camping this weekend in a place called Trona Pinnacles, which is like three hours from LA, and it's like a certified dark sky area. And I slept outside, like on a cot under the stars. It's really dark. It's really beautiful. Milky Way, all that stuff. I saw probably five satellites and maybe like 10 shooting stars while I was down there, out there. I don't think I saw any of these. Would I have seen these? Imagine 12,000. So some astronomers saying it'll, it'll look like the whole sky is crawling. Yeah, but I mean, you said that they already sent some up, but I didn't see them. I mean, I saw some satellites, but they were doing like the standard, like, what are they called? Uh, flares? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they were just regular satellites because they were pretty faint. I mean, you could see them because of the movement and then every so often they would flare. But I don't mm-hmm. think I saw any of these. Hey, Bob. Yeah. Help me on the math here. So if I look up at the sky... What what percentage of the entire sky of the planet visible from the planet Earth am I looking at? Two percent, something like that. Maybe you could say you could see, depending on where you're located, maybe thirty to forty percent of them. It's still a lot. That's a lot. That's just a guess. But the thing is, if you're sending up twelve, ultimately twelve thousand satellites that are going to be that bright, there was no like, hey, wait, let's think about this. Nope, they didn't uh, consult no, scientists or astronomers that before they did pathetic. it. That is pathetic. That's pathetic. Like, don't we see the – doesn't the ISS fly around the world 15 times a day? Yeah. You can see it. Yeah, I have an app that tracks it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so like how how far from that orbit are these sats? Are they even closer? Do they fly around more times than that a day? These are these are going Much to be farther. around three hundred and seventy three miles. About uh, this time, that, that orbit. close. That's close. That's not. Uh, yeah, it's lower. It's lower miles orbit. Mm-hmm. Or it's yeah. not geosynchronous. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. So right now, for comparison, right now there's about four hundred satellites in that orbit. So it's four hundred is going to become twelve thousand, which again is four time about four times the number of visible stars in the sky. Yeah, wow. but well, it's good that they're raising a ruckus now because then. Then they could now they could make changes because it's going to be quite a while before they launch them all up. They, you know they raise enough rockets they could they could change something about the satellites to prevent, if possible, that such a because that's that's almost un, completely untenable. Like no, you you can't do that. <laughs> I mean, I, I I applaud the goal of providing internet to the world. You know, doing this that's interesting. But yeah, there was no thought of of what the, what it would do to viewing the sky or to just like space junk. And I've heard of companies, private companies, sending advertising up into space, building billboards essentially large enough that you could see them with the naked eye from the planet. And I've heard that that for decades now. And I always thought that was just a, the worst of the worst ideas. Oh, my <laughs> because God. Because you get one up there, you're going to have 100 billboards floating around eventually. Who the hell wants to see that in space? They better never do that. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Or imagine like advertising on the moon. Oh, No. Oh my god, so depressing, you guys! It's like the most, most dystopian thing we've <laughs> yeah, that's ever very talked dystopian. about. The moon yeah. brought to you by the Coca Cola company. I agree, Kara. Like that is really oh, gosh. like that's anti. That's um, Fallout. That like the dystopian Fallout, or that would that would happen in Futurama. Ah, uh, sure. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's too small okay. of a billboard. No, they were talking about it being miles high by miles wide. These billboards. They'd unfold in once they're in orbit. Into, <laughs> oh, um, into yeah, these I'm talking about I'm talking about the moon, but the oh, the moon! You'd have small. to have something pretty huge. Well, wouldn't you? You would, pre- but like you could see it easily. You could see it with binoculars. You could see it with a telescope. You could see it with the naked eye, especially if it's like a logo, like a giant logo. Right, on the moon. right. I don't remember the science fiction giant. story. They pre- they used the the moon as a projection screen, and they were able mm. to project things onto the moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like with lasers, you could do that mm-hmm. from Earth. You did a you? lot of lasers to do. Yeah, a, but you could do it. You could, you know, make out. With your eye, well, the, the atmosphere would, the atmosphere would attenuate the beams tremendously. But um, but yeah, you do, do we do do it? That's how we that's how mm. we know how how far away the moon is to like um, you know millimeter accuracy or centimeter yeah, like accuracy. Ping it. Yeah, you right. ping it. I couldn't find the size, but the weight is five hundred pounds or two hundred and twenty seven kilograms. Mm. I don't know. I don't know how big they are. But wait, wait, per or is that the whole payload of like a hundred of them? Per each oh, those one are is big. Yeah. Well, no, that's not small. It's like a that's not a cube set. Yeah, five hundred pounds could be you know the size of what like a garbage can. Tardis. Like a Definitely not the size of a grapefruit. Yeah, I probably am not correct with that size. I don't know. why. I thought I saw a picture of them once that that, that made them look like that. Bottom line is though, I mean, you know, it's the like Steve said, twelve thousand. Twelve thousand. You know, at any gosh. given time, I, I want to know at any given time how many can I see at once, hmm. fully deployed by by twenty. Well, it sounds like they never thought that far ahead. Hundreds. Mm-hmm. There's going to be stars be we hundreds. cannot see because these are so bright. That sucks. Oh, for sure. Um, it's going to completely change the night sky. Yeah. Absolutely. A- absolutely. Completely change it. S- so Screw if- that shit. So what's more important, seeing the night sky or giving the world internet capability? 
We need it's a, a false way. dichotomy. There are other ways to give the world internet. <laughs> also, guys, the more the more I think okay. about it, we are not going to see ads on the moon. That's utterly ridiculous. <laughs> Do you know? I'm not talking about aesthetics or or anything like that. Just the, the pure, technically pulling that off. You're not going to do it from from the Earth because no, the you beat, wouldn't do it the, from the Earth. You'd have the device orbiting the Moon doing it, right? right? It a would big have to be orbiting the there. Moon, and it would have to be so amazingly powerful that uh, why would they want it? Why would they invest like a billion dollars just to get a stupid ad on the Moon? It wouldn't just be a ad, Bob. It would be a series of ads by by multi billion dollar corporations. You know, you don't think Apple and Facebook couldn't do it. And you realize that like our entire economy is built on advertising, right? Like everything mm-hmm. comes of course, down to Of course I do. That's we're talking- all of Facebook. That's like all, like is selling private information to advertisers so they can market to you. Yeah, but like, I don't think that, I don't think they're going to want to invest what I will uh, back of the napkin calculation like me, like tens of billions of dollars. To, no, maybe to not now. Ad. And yeah, it seems right. ludicrous, but I would not put it past like to be like oh just for an advertisement. Everything is about advertising. Like they have massive budgets for that. I'm going to pull a Bob and tell you about a science fiction movie story that I read once. Okay. It's a long time ago <laughs> where, where aliens visited us and cool. they offered us like their advanced technology, like healing technology, et cetera, in exchange for renting the day the Earth like in perpetuity Jupiter. You no know? problem. Hey. Yeah. And so we did. Like, sure, we'll take your hands. Yeah, we're not using please. Jupiter for what's, anything. What's the rental agreement? And so they, what they wanted to do with Jupiter was put an advertisement on it. <laughs> you know, like just put a giant billboard in the atmosphere of Jupiter that could be seen. Um, it was it was a funny story, but oh yeah, because these people because these aliens are like interstellar travelers. And yeah, stuff. yeah, it's yeah. Just like a billboard. That's funny. Right. It was a billboard. Yeah, exactly. And we're all like stuck on Earth. Like, we don't understand your technology. <laughs> Help us not die. We were we were the backwards rubes. You know? Totally. We've <laughs> never left home. I'll buy that for a dollar. Steve, you just, <laughs> yeah. you just entered a concept into my mind that's horrifying to me. Yeah. Corporate aliens. Yeah. Oh, well, right. someone's got a sponsor them, Jay. That's well, look scary. at Vogons, man. Yeah. yeah. The Vogons. I don't like yeah. that at all. I know. It's, it's funny. Like, our conception of aliens is always so sanitized, like it's monoculture and they're so serious, you know, like they have one unified purpose as a race. And yeah, but, but and yeah, it's we either don't, all good or all bad. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, but you know, think about it, all the interesting, quirky, cu- culturally insane stuff, you know, that an, an alien yeah. race. Well, we look do. at this. Look at Discovery. They had the extremist Vulcans. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, like we can't even really understand what their motivation is because you'd have to understand a lot about their culture to realize, like, if, if there was the equivalent of a corporation that had very narrow interests. Because we we don't have a hard time imagining humans in the future, like with Avatar, right? So there, there was a a, a corporation from Earth exploiting the locals. So that. You know, we have a, we don't have a hard time imagining that, but we don't we rarely think about it the other way. Mm. Anyway, we have a good show coming up. We're going to start with Bob, a forgotten superhero of science. You haven't done one of these in a while. Yes, for this week's forgotten superheroes of science, I'm talking about Anne Innes Dagg, born in 1933, Canadian zoologist, biologist, feminist, and author, known as the Jane Goodall of giraffes. As uh, as sometimes happens, maybe not often enough. Uh, as a child, Anne. Uh, Dag's career in science was essentially hard-coded into her little brain when she fell in love with giraffes at the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago. 
uh, just such a wonderful experience to imagine a little kid seeing something at a museum and then basically her life, her career is, is set in motion at that day. It's just a fun concept that I think all parents should should strive for with their little kids. So she looked, she looked for a book. She loved giraffes so much that she looked for a book on, on her, what were now her favorite animals. And of course the internet wasn't around, but she couldn't find any, even in that, that thing that they called libraries back in the day, uh, notebooks. So she said to herself, or she actually said, so I thought, well, I'll learn about giraffes and then I'll write one. And that's exactly what she did. Dag graduated with a degree in biology from the University of Toronto in 1955. Uh, soon afterwards, she talked uh, a farmer in South Africa um, to let her do research on his land. And for over a year, she documented giraffe behavior, including things seen for the first time, how giraffes were fought using their very long and very strong necks. She documented male giraffe homosexual behavior and many, many other things. Uh, in a recent documentary film, The Woman Who Loves Giraffes, Dag said, no one had ever really studied an African animal in the wild or pretty well any animal in the wild. So I was breaking ground without realizing it. This, this is true. She was the first Western researcher to study animals in the wild in Africa. In 19, and this is in 1956. This was well before Jane Goodall's study of chimpanzees and Diane Fossey's work uh, with gorillas. So perhaps then, it would be more correct to say that Jane Goodall was the Anne Dag of chimpanzees. Nice. Um, so after that, after that, she returned to Canada and published 20 research papers. But unfortunately, and not surprisingly, uh, she ran to her fair share and, and then some of discrimination because she was a woman. We've, we've mentioned this all the time on these, on these segments. It's really disheartening. Uh, she was refused tenure and jobs as many women scientists were at that time. Um, it's just so horrible to think that science uh, that wasn't, you know, the science that wasn't done because of discrimination like that. And this discrimination, of course, that continues to this day in many ways and on, on so many levels. Uh, but still, she had a, an amazing career and she did write that book. And that, that book was the book on giraffes. Anybody after her, anybody who was studying giraffes had to read her book because that, that was the book to read. So, of course, uh, you would, that would be the go-to book. So, remember Anne Dagg, mention her to your friends. Perhaps when discussing Cervus camelopardalis, fission fusion societies, or the constellation crux. <laughs> Look them up, people. Oh boy. The constellation crux? Yes, that's, uh, that's a constellation called crux. That these, if I'm pronouncing this right, the uh, Tswana people, uh, when they look at that constellation, they see two giraffes. Oh, cool. Ah, interesting. I like that. There is, for pretty much any of the, the charismatic megafauna, I imagine there's like one researcher who wrote the Bible on that animal, right? Sure. There is an andag of probably pretty much anything out there, or there needs to be anyway, because every animal probably has just as complex, you know, a behavior and life cycle and information about them that you're only going to learn if you like spend years in the wild observing them. Yeah, mm. of course. And a lot of the, and, and it's interesting because a lot of them, like Diane Fossey and Dag, Jane Goodall, were women. You know, yep. I wonder if mm -hmm. that that activity of just being in the field observing is is disproportionately women. In the 19th century, like observing nature was one of the few scientific activities that that women were quote unquote allowed to do. You know, allowed. yeah, and a lot of early entomologists. I mean, I don't think they unfortunately got the title, but like in Victorian era, like a lot of women kept insects. Mm -hmm. It was like a very womanly task would be to like catch insects and and then watch their life cycles and draw them and write yeah, things exactly. down. 
Um, but of course, that they, was okay. nobody called them yeah. naturalists or scientists, unfortunately. Okay, I'm going to start off the news items. This one, is, unfortunately, is not a good news item. It's a bad news item. Bad news, this is everyone. About, bad news. It's about <laughs> the World Health Organization. It's an organization I have a love-hate relationship with. They do a lot of wonderful things. Uh, they were founded in Who? 1948 by the UN. And uh, they have their uh, their manifesto is uh, their constitution. I agree with you know pretty much across the board. I particularly want to point out uh, where they say the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of health is one of the fundamental rights of every human being, without distinction of race, religion, political belief, economic or social condition. Mm-hmm. They also state that ep- that evidence based medicine is vital for health and medical progress. So I think that their latest publication of the International Diagnostic Codes, the ICD codes, now we're up to ICD-11, which is an international standardization of diagnoses, right? Pretty much what it says. It's used in the U.S. uh, for for billing and referrals and uh, for for epidemiology, for, for tracking morbidity and mortality. It's the standardization of the diagnoses. So in the in the latest one, they have a chapter, a whole chapter on no, no, don't tra- say it. Traditional Chinese medicine diagnoses. Oh my I God, know. what the hell? When I read this, like a little piece of me just died. Yeah, it's okay, terrible. I have a quick it's question. Hell. Yeah, is the reason that they include this because they want physicians to be able to recognize if patients come to them and describe symptoms that already have names in their culture? Well, that is part of the justification for it. They always are going to justify things like this by saying, we just want to keep track of what's actually happening out there in the world and people are using this and so we need to keep track of it. But But, it's it's not true. But don't you think that at least that portion is valid? Like the the new DSM? No, I really don't. I really don't. Really? The DSM-5 has a section on like cultural competency and diagnostics with like – mental illness, psychological disorders, they call them very different things in different cultures. And then they try to cross-tabulate and say, like, this is maybe this, like similar to schizophrenia in our culture. It's maybe But that's not law. what it is. That's not okay. what this This isn't saying right. this is how this – so we understand this, to, this disease to be X in the West mm-hmm. or in developed nations. And in this culture, they understand that same entity in this way. This is what they're going to call it. That's, that's not, not what this is. That's not no. what this is at all. That sucks. What, yeah, what this is is codifying – uh, essentially f- completely fake diagnoses within the uh, pre-scientific superstitious you know philosophy of traditional Chinese medicine that has no relationship to 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 uh, scientific diagnoses and no relationship to reality to be honest with you they're based on diagnostic techniques that are not real and diagnostic entities that are not real. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say, again, one of the justifications that they give for it is that this will help epidemiologically to track, you know, morbidity in countries that use this, that use the traditional Chinese medicine. But again, that's, we, we all know that's not really what it's about. Uh, this is about legitimizing traditional Chinese medicine as part of China's effort to export their culture you know, in a, in a very deliberate campaign to do so. That makes sense um, because they could they could compartmentalize this entirely away from the rest of legitimate science and and still say we're studying this as cultural phenomenon, however they want to classify it. They don't have to lump it in with legitimate science. 
Oh, I know, right? And but also, it's the the chapter is optional, and it's re, and it's in addition to. You can't use it instead of. You have to use it in addition to uh, a, a real diagnosis, which you may think that's a good thing. But what that means is it doesn't serve any of the purposes they state that they say. It's a, it gives a lie to every justification that they're giving for it, because if you still have to use a real diagnosis, even in countries that use TCM, then what's the point of the fake diagnoses? Right. Right, wow. but what it what it does it's basically this is the best marketing like, is pandering that yeah it's the best marketing that TCM has ever had essentially. Yeah. But what do you think is the is the real honest rationale? You really think it's marketing? Oh, absolutely, and and ma- mm. make no mistake, the head of the of the WHO for the for for the previous ten years, like oh, up to yeah. two thousand and seventeen, was Chinese and yeah. believed in TCM, and so I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, and of course, the acupuncturists are all crowing about this, right? This is mm-hmm. the legitimacy that they've been seeking. Great. But of course, let you know. What what diagnoses do you think they're going to be including? So actually, David Gorsky's written about this. I've written about this now for um, science based medicine. In, in Dave's article, he reports on this one. This is SG twenty six bladder meridian pattern. What a, pa- a pattern characterized by clashing headache and sensation that the eyes are being torn out. The nape of the neck is tight. There is pain in the spine. The waist arches backwards. The thigh cannot flex. The back of the knee has lumps, and there is a sensation that the calf is being split apart. Symptoms and signs also include excess lacrimation, nasal congestion, pain in the head, neck, back, waist, sacrum, back of the knee, calf and foot, and impaired use of the little toe. Lacrimation, is that tears? Yeah, so, that's like what? crying. Yeah, lacrimation is <laughs> tears. But don't forget the, the impaired use of little, the little toe. That's important because your little toe you know, is critical. You know, so <laughs> And so this, all of those symptoms can be explained as a bladder meridian dysfunction now by the World Horse Health Organization's uh, ICD-9 oh codes. Great. Meridian. They're, they actually are buying into a meridian? Oh, totally. Yeah, of course. This is TCM. I mean, they, they explicitly will say this is a meridian-based issue? What the hell? Totally. All right. Here, so here is now Acupuncture Today uh, describing the diagnoses that are going to be used in, in the ICD-11. Um, so if they give an example, so like for example, you might say the TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, TCM pulse is string-like. So that's based on the pulse diagnosis. They basically list, they feel the pulse for minutes and characterize its nuanced details of the pulse, right? So they say, oh, the pulse is string-like and the tongue, that's another TCM diagnostic modality. They, they just look at the tongue and, and make all kinds of diagnoses based upon what it looks like. Oh, great. The tongue is dusky with a thin white coat. Now they say, if my patient is seeking an acupuncture treatment in my notes, I will write down a TCM diagnosis that I may select based on channel pattern identification syndrome differentiation. Migraine due to obstruction of lesser yang meridian. If my patient <gasps> is seeking, if my patient is seeking an herbal treatment in my notes, I write down a TCM diagnosis that I may select based on a visceral pattern identification syndrome differentiation. Migraine due to ascendant hyperactivity of liver yang. That's what's in the now the World Health Organization ICD-9 wow. diagnoses Whoa. based upon pulse diagnoses, which is fake, tongue diagnoses, which is fake, and meridians, yin and yang. <gasps> it's complete, it. <laughs> complete <laughs> pseudoscience. You do realize that this is one of the signs of the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the thing yeah. is, there, there's absolutely no way that you can codify the ascendant hyperactivity of the liver yang without endorsing the underlying pseudoscience. Of course. Right. Yeah. 
It's just there's which, just no way you could separate. Which would then impact the rest of the damn book. Well, again, it's, right? it's, in, it's in its own chapter and it's a separate yeah. diagnosis. Yeah, it should be. It's, it should be its own. It's like book. they pulled it in from another universe. I mean, eventually, it's going to have to infiltrate the other aspects of of that code, right? I mean, it's. Yeah. I mean, how could it exist unto itself? No, I know. I agree. So, and, and uh, in China, the government, a government newspaper, called this a major step toward TCM's internationalization. Terrible. So again, yeah. they that's what they see. That this is they're not being coy about that at all. Talk to me. Talk to me about the outcries, and not just you and Dave. No, there's an outcry. There is an outcry. So there was a recent editorial in Nature. So a big, that's a big, you know, science yeah. journal. Uh, and it wasn't in one of the subsidiaries. It was just in Nature. And mm-hmm. they, they were appropriately critical of the, of the WHO for doing this. However, I do have to quibble with some of the things that they said. Oh, God. Uh, because, you know, I don't expect, I mean, I would be nice. I would like for, you know, for scientists who are not steeped in scientific skepticism to understand this at a deep level, but they rarely do. And so here's a, here's one paragraph that I thought was uh, equivocating accommodationism, but you listen to it. They write, traditional medicine should certainly not be dismissed. Sometimes it is all that's available in many parts of the world. Some life-saving therapies have come from natural products and there are doubtless more to be found. Famously, the gold standard malaria drug Artemisinin was discovered in China, isolated from sweet wormwood, an herb used in TCM. It is also important to distinguish practices that do no harm from those that that might not work but are relatively benign and those that might work but have not been tested rigorously. Wishy-washy nonsense. It's worse than wishy-washy. So first of all, it's buying into the framing of alternative medicine that, oh, natural remedies are alternative and they lead to real treatment. So so there's got to be something in here that's good. So first of all, we talked about the... Uh, the the artemisinin you know discovery. First of all, it was not used for malaria in traditional Chinese medicine. It exists in a part of the country that doesn't even have malaria, and the that's fact right. that the fact that we purify drugs from plants. Okay, that's nothing new. We've many many of our drugs are purified from plants. It doesn't in any way justify the herbal use of those plants, which are usually disconnected from their actual pharmacology. Um, or does it, nor does it justify a system that is not based on on science or evidence? No, I mean, and this is what like isn't this what ethnobotany is all about? Like somebody yeah. goes out, they go to these regions where people have traditional techniques, and then they actually like look at them in the lab, and if they realize yeah. that something works, then it becomes medicine. Then they identify it, they purify it, they, yeah. you know, they, they quantify it, and then it's not it. traditional medicine anymore. But right, exactly, it's, it's pharmacology. Medicine. Yeah, there's pharmacognosy, which is the whole practice of yeah. of scouring, you know, traditions and plants and et cetera, looking for looking for the raw material for development of pharmaceuticals. Absolutely, but and again, that's always the the foot in the door, the tip of the iceberg for alternative medicine, the herbal treatments, because herbs are drugs; they can actually have an effect. Most of them are crap, but you know, the, some of them can have an actual right. Effect. Even a blind basketball player can can sink it once in a while. Yeah, but well, but like it doesn't say anything about acupuncture or other ones that are based on magic. There's yeah. just because just because some herb turned out to have a useful pharmacological uh, component to it, so that doesn't what? mean that magic works, right? Or should be given right. <laughs> any any relevance. That's why I do think that at least the comment that they made about like 
the difference between things that just haven't been sufficiently tested and the things that have been tested and debunked, I do think is an important comment that not a lot of people think about. Like a lot of people think anything that's traditional or anything that's quote unquote natural, we just haven't really done the science on it yet. And it's like, no, most of that stuff we've done a lot of very good science yeah, on. Yeah, we actually know, we know that it they don't work. work. Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right, but, that, but, but I do think that they were kowtowing a little bit by saying that because it's because that does play into, again, that narrative. This all works, just hasn't been tested rigorously yet. No, it actually doesn't work. And the other thing is we don't need to test everything rigorously, right? Some things we know don't work because they don't make any sense. Implausible. Like I, I, I as I wrote in, I wrote in Science Based Medicine, I could say that eating spiders will cure your migraines. I don't need to test that hypothesis to, to dismiss it because I just made it up. It's based on nothing, you know? And there's no plausibility. And that's the so, difference between evidence-based and science-based. Yes, exactly. So we can use prior plausibility to make statements and decide what's worth testing rigorously. Uh, and also the, uh, the characterization of any pseudoscientific treatment as quote-unquote benign is false. None of it's benign. The unstated major premise there is that something which does not have direct harm is benign. And that is not the only type right. of harm that comes opportunity from pseudoscience. Cost. There's opportunity cost. There's delayed treatment, delayed effective treatment. There is spreading conspiracy theories about science and medical institutions. There is spreading belief systems, which are pseudoscientific. Now people are talking about yin and yang. That's what, that's not benign. Believing in pseudoscience is not benign. So that's where the edit, the editors in nature failed, in my opinion. They bought into the alternative medicine propaganda hook, line, and sinker in that paragraph, which is unfortunate. But the rest of it was good. I mean, the rest of it talk about the fact that traditional Chinese medicine is responsible for, you know, a lot of species being endangered mm -hmm. and even sure. going extinct. We talked about the pangolin, but also mm -hmm. the rhino, lots of other ones. The donkey, I mean, in, they've, they've exhausted a lot of these species in Asia, and now they've moved on to Africa, and they're mm -hmm. starting to create a massive market for the tr these, uh, trade in these African animals. And as the middle class of China grows, the demand for these traditional Chinese medicine snake oils is growing, sure. and that's going to wipe out a lot of species. When a billion people start demanding something, you bet yeah. it's going to have yeah. an impact. Absolutely. So it's th that's not benign either, folks. You know, even though it's not causing human harm, it's it, it's it's a suit. It's pseudoscience causing species to go extinct because of demand for rhino horn or pangolin scales or you know or whatever bear bile, so. yeah, tiger bones, I, uh, ass hide glue, yeah, ass hide <laughs> goo. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so this is a fail. This is a fail on the part of the World Health Organization. They deserve to be ridiculed for it and criticized sharply. I'm glad at least to see that editorial in Nature. I hope there's enough of a backlash that they reconsider. Because, again, the, the alternative medicine proponents are going to use this to push their ball forward, right? This is just the first step. But we have to push it back because this is bad. This is the infiltration of quackery into scientific medicine, and it's it's going to have a massive negative effect. It is having a massive negative effect. Okay, let's move on to some completely different topic, Jay. You're going to tell us about a maybe a a, a, a solar panel discovery. This is a, a cool thing here. There's 40 years of researchers around the world. They've been trying to solve this inherent problem with the silicon substrate that makes up most solar panels. 
And the research team at the University of Manchester is saying that they solved this flaw. So this this flaw existed, and I didn't know about it, but they solved it the day I found out about it, which well, is all good with me. To be clear, they they've they've solved the mystery of what's causing it. They haven't fixed. The they flaw. haven't fixed it yet. They ha- it hasn't been yeah. engineered yet. Yeah. So the real question here is, what does this mean to solar panels moving forward? Overall efficiency, right? Let's talk about it. So today. Bulks, the bulk of solar panels that are out there reach about a 20% efficiency. And this means that 80% of the light that hits a solar panel, it's not absorbed. It, just, it, doesn't, it doesn't ever get turned into electricity. So in order to collect, as an example, 200 watts of electrical power, 1,000 watts of potential sunlight has to hit the solar panels, right? Does that make sense? So over the past several decades, 270 research papers have been focused on this. They they have it is a known material defect in in silicon that limits and also degrades the solar cell efficiency. Now the issue is that after a solar panel has been functioning, it drops from the twenty percent, which is as good as they get, the twenty percent efficiency, and it drops to an eighteen percent efficiency. And they didn't understand what was going on, and nobody could find out what the cause was. You know, two hundred and seventy papers later, and nobody had any idea what, why this was happening, and it was happening. Uh, predictably and and easy to measure. You know, they can easily see, yep, we lo- we're losing 2% efficiency now after the solar panel has been running for a little while. So this is called light-induced degradation. A 2% drop might not seem like a lot, but if you add up all the solar panels out there and all the lost power, it actually turns out, you know what, it turns out to be an incredible amount of, of lost energy. So this problem has completely stumped everyone who's looked at it for a very long time. Some of the best researchers in the in the field were looking at it for 40 years, and they couldn't figure it out. The, the uh, international team at the University of Manchester, though, they have finally found the defect. So the team was led by Profe- Professor Matthew Hassel, uh, and he uh, – blah, 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 blah. All right, let me say it again. So the team was led by Profe- Professor Matthew Hussle, and the paper was published in the Journal of Applied Physics. So the team observed that a defect exists or there, there is something in physics that's happening here that is causing this, this 2% loss. So they found that the bulk of silicon solar cells change when they're exposed to sunlight. And they observed something that they're calling a trap that limits the flow of electrons like which which blocks them or slows down the the flow of electrons you know that's essentially what they're what they're gauging the efficiency of the solar the solar panels like how many electrons are they pulling off of this thing per certain amount of time this is the loss of solar cell efficiency so the researchers are saying that it's just a matter of engineering now to fix the problem. That's what Steve was saying before. Like they have to – it seems like they minimize the, oh, it's just a matter of engineering. That was a very um, sounding easily to be solved situation. I, I really have no idea. Couldn't find anything on it because I, I don't think anyone's even looked into the engineering fix yet. Yeah, who knows? That's just making that up. Yeah, no right. How hard it's going to be to fix this problem. And the more efficient a solar panel is directly translates into the fact that there, it has fewer of these electron traps. So um, from what, what I read here, it seems like if you have a 15% efficiency, it's because of this, these traps that are in there that are – there's more present in, in a panel that's 15% efficient versus a 20% efficient. More efficient cells also means that it will have a larger charge carrier lifetime, which simply means how much electricity can the material produce until it doesn't work anymore. And I think that they were saying that um, 
that once they figured this out, that they would be able to increase the uh, the lifespan of solar cells as well. And I also saw something that said that they can reset the solar cells by heat, treating them in darkness in in a heat chamber. And I've, I've never read that before, but that's interesting because, you know, imagine instead of throwing away or trying to recycle solar cells after they've, they've lived throughout their lifespan, they bring them back to a factory, they heat treat them, and then redeploy them. That would be fantastic. Steve, you, um, you had a very awesome blog not that long ago that really covered three new areas of, of solar cell technology. And this is not a part of that. This is, you know, this is, we're talking about the 95% that are already out there. You know, these solar cells that are made out of, have a base of silicon are the vast, vast majority of the ones that are out there right now. And this augmentation would only affect that one of the three that you uh, blogged about. Yeah, I did write about this recently. So just to, just to give you some background. So most of the commercial solar cells right now are based on silicon. The efficiency range for the ones on the market are 17 to 20%, which is really good, actually. You know, it wasn't I mean, right, when we first started doing this show, we were talking about like the 12 to 15% range. You know, they were, they were much lower at that time. Um, so there's been this steady progress, but there are prototypes in the lab that get up to 26%, right? So we could already get silicon based solar cells at 26% efficiency, just not uh, commercialized, right? They haven't been scaled up, right? So, so we could mass produce them. Uh, there's apparently a, a theoretical limit for silicon of 29%. That's called the Shockley Queiser limit, Q U E I S S E R. That now, the, in order to get past that limit, that twenty nine percent, then we have to do some kind of quantum dots or whatever. Then there's got to be. It doesn't mean that that's the absolute limit totally. Just yeah, that's the limit for using silicon using existing technology. But we, we might be able to get around that with like quantum nanotechnology, right, Bob? Woo-hoo. So that's that's pretty good. Even twenty nine percent would be that would be incredible. Uh, but there's another. There's an up and coming type of solar panel called perovskite. Have you guys heard of this? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it's a different material. And perovskites are the the efficiency of the perovskite solar panels is increasing very rapidly. And the theoretical limit for perovskite is around 31%, so it's a little bit better than the silicon. However, the perovskite panels have a major drawback, and that is that they're not stable. They tend to break down in sunlight. That's a bad thing. So that's a that's a major problem that needs to be fixed with the perovskites. And it's one of those things where if they do, then the, probably that will revolutionize the solar panel industry. If they don't, we'll never see them. You know what I mean? But there's also another kind of solar panel, organic solar panels, the, the current organic solar panels are at about an 11% efficiency. So that's a lot less. But they're, but organic solar panels are a lot cheaper. They're thin and they're flexible. So and they're easy to mass produce and to install. So even though they have half the efficiency, they may have a quarter the price, you know, or and and there you could put them in more places and they're easier to install etc so it it could be depend depends on your application like how much density of production that you need but organic solar cells may be the way to go however there's a major problem with the organic cells and cuz they are also not stable 
the surface tends to react with oxygen in the air and moisture and breaks down. And so the efficiency slowly decreases over time. Um, you can cover it with a sealant, but then that reduces the efficiency even more. And the, the increased thickness reduces the flexibility and again can make it more rigid. But there is, I was writing about this because there was a recent discovery where they found a new method of making the organic solar cells more stable chemically without, they, they treat them with butyric acid, methyl ester. And uh, that tends to stabilize the surface so it doesn't react with oxygen without changing its thickness or its flexibility. So we'll see if that pans out, but that, you know, again, we talk about these, you know, solar voltaic news items uh, occasionally, but there's actually, they're, they're happening all the time. And as, as we discussed recently on the show, this is what ultimately is responsible for the slow, steady increase in the efficiency and reduction in the cost of solar panels on the market. So we don't know which one of these, like in 10 years, are we going to be using, you know, high-tech silicon solar panels, perovskite solar panels, or are we just going to be plastering organic solar panels everywhere? Who knows? I don't think we know the answer to that question yet. But any of them can work out. But even just the the state of the art now, like a good solid silicon panel with 20% efficiency is great. And if we can keep it from losing that 2% you know, degradation, even better. As Jay said, it doesn't sound like that much, but it actually is. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our, one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses Plus. Well, how would you like to learn about stuff that you really want to learn about? Absolutely. Uh, now, this might sound funny, but like I'm talking about like, let's say you love dinosaurs or space exploration or painting or playing music. Doesn't matter. You're lucky because the Great Courses Plus lets you do that. Bob, you know how to do it. Yeah, Jay, this service offers a huge library of audio and visual courses on just about any topic you could imagine and all delivered by experts who present the material in a way that's both fun and fascinating. You could explore everything from exoplanets and Egyptian hieroglyphs to great fiction writing and grilling and photography, and the list just seems endless. Yeah, one of my favorite courses I, I uh, watched on The Great Courses Plus was the, the Fundamentals of Photography. It's just like anything that you want to up your skill level in, there's a great course on that. It goes into details about not just the composition, but also technical things like lighting, focal length, shutter speeds, aperture settings, you know, all the, the little technical details that will take you from just snapping crappy pictures to taking great photographs. And we want you to make The Great Courses Plus your go-to for lifelong learning. For a limited time, they're offering our listeners a full free month of unlimited access to their entire library when you sign up using our special URL thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, let's move on. Kara. Yep. This is an interesting item. I also wrote about this, but this is, you're going to talk about one, a, a different aspect than the one I focused on. A mutation that causes HIV protection, but has a downside to it. Yeah, and I did read your write-up as well. And I also got into a couple conversations on Twitter, which were kind of interesting about this. Um, but for those of you, everybody, does everybody remember the first CRISPR babies from oh, last yeah. year? Oh, yeah. boy. Did, do we ever. Oh, boy. So this is a follow-up from that um, from that story. And if you remember, I tried to look up how to pronounce um, his name. Of course, I don't speak Mandarin, so my pronunciation is not going to be great. But I think it's pronounced Hua. Jiangui, 
And um, Hua Zhuangkui actually did this like rogue CRISPR work. And the idea was that there was a woman who wanted to undergo IVF, wanted to use the father's sperm. The father was HIV positive. So the idea here was, well, there seems to be a deletion or a mutation um, of the Delta 30 called Delta 32. And Steve, you actually got a little bit deeper into it. This was the the CCR5 gene, which is or receptor, sorry, um, the CC chemokine receptor type 5 gene. And um, the idea was, well, if we use a mutated version of that, then um, perhaps these babies will actually be resistant to HIV because in the general population, it appears to be the case that when individuals have this mutation, like this naturally occurring mutation, they're immune to HIV. Okay. So kind of makes sense on the surface, right? Everybody following so far? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um so the issue is this guy goes rogue. He does this um, CRISPR gene editing without any sort of approval or oversight or anything like that. And then he comes out and does this big, big press release that says, by the way, I created these two babies um, using CRISPR. So there's a new paper that was just published in Nature where these researchers were like, you know what? I'd love to see what happens when they're hom homozygous for this allele. So they've got these two mutations or they've got this mutation on both copies of, of the gene. Um, and it's this Delta 32 allele, this, the exact same one that the uh, researcher tried to mutate using CRISPR or tried to actually knock out. From what I've read a little bit deeper, he was just trying to knock that gene out altogether, but we'll get there. Um, and so these researchers were like, we're going to look at a ton of people and we're going to see and, and like a ton of genetic information and we're going to decide whether or not there are any like outstanding effects from this change other than resistance to HIV. So they looked at 409,693 British people or people of British ancestry and they looked across the board and they saw that across a bunch of different calculations that they did, people with this mutation or people who, who were homozygous for it, so they had it on both versions of their gene, uh, had a 21% increase in all-cause mortality rate. So, Steve, maybe you can give us, just because I didn't dive too deep into this, but it just means they 21% of them died sooner than, like, "Quote unquote normal, right? Yeah. What's the what is the risk of dying over yeah. a period of time? And it was twenty one percent higher if you had the double dose of that mutation than if you didn't. Yeah, than if you didn't. Yeah. Have it. So it wasn't so much about these different things could cause it. Blah blah. It's just like across the board, all cause mortality. Yeah. They but, also, but if you read deeply into it, it was a lot of it was from the flu. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And we'll we'll double back to that. They also found that like they did some population genetics work too. There's something called the Hardy Weinberg equ equilibrium. A lot of you might remember back to your bio 101 class when you learned about Hardy Weinberg. So they were looking that they they kind of did some population calculations to show like yeah, people with these um, alterations to their gene are also like they have decreased fitness overall. Okay, mm -hmm. so like evolutionarily, this isn't good. The interesting thing, though, is that I didn't realize this, but I shared an article from 
Cosmos, which is a uh, an Australian magazine, and it links to the journal article in Nature, where the researchers, the title of the journal article, which makes perfect sense, is CCR5 Delta 32. So we we're just talking about that. This allele is deleterious in the homozygous state in humans. So basically, when we look at a big chunk of people, if they have this, it's not good. Uh, seems to be 21% increase in all-cause mortality. This guy tried to edit this gene, put it in these babies. A lot of people are misreporting this in a really crappy way where they're like, by the way, these kids are probably going to be sick. Like, no, we don't know that. There's so many factors at play. Mm -hmm. 21% increase doesn't mean these kids are going to be sick. Um, it does appear that it has an immune uh, and that's what you wrote about more, Steve. So maybe you can pick that up in a minute that it it affects, obviously, an immune response. That's why people don't get HIV when they tend to have it. But it does seem to be the case that people get sick from other things more often. And oftentimes those other things are viral infections like the flu. Which um, are common. Yeah, which are much more common than HIV. Um it, just in the sense that – or they're easier to catch, I should mm -hmm. say, and they're harder to prevent against. Um, you can prevent against H HIV with, um, you know, with uh, certain types of uh, preventive measures where we're a little bit more knowledgeable about how to prevent against HIV. Um, so – but one of the interesting things that came to pass when I tweeted this article is that – and I think um, I'll mention by name. There's a really great science communicator named Adam Rutherford. Do you guys know who he is? He's he's from the UK. I've had him on my podcast a couple of times. He's a quite successful writer, science communicator. He's a geneticist actually. He, ha he has his PhD in genetics. He contributes to The Guardian. He's a an editor for Nature. He used to be an editor at Nature. Yeah, I've read his stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's written a lot of good books, blah, blah, blah. Human Animal, I think, is his most recent book. Great guy. So I tweet this thing and he replies to me. So interesting. And I feel like I should have known this. And I think you did know this, Steve, because of the way you wrote your article. But we nobody's nobody in all the articles I read dive too deep into it. So I tweeted the HIV protective gene mutation targeted in the CRISPR, ba uh, CRISPR baby scandal. Um could potentially prove fatal, study finds. And then he said, except that neither of the babies have the Delta 32 deletion, which is just another level of awfulness of this story. They were implanted after He demonstrated that they didn't have the new allele, but he did it anyway. And I was like, wait, what? That was the whole point. Everything I'm reading says they have the Delta 32 mutation. Where'd you read that the gene was unaltered? And he said, he showed it in the original presentation in Hong Kong. He was trying to introduce D32, but neither embryo carried it. Instead, they had a different edited deletion alleles, unknown to science or nature. None of this is verified, as we all know, as all we know is what He presented. So what are we talking about here? Yeah, yeah that, so, that's right. I mean, so, yeah, so uh, there, he introduced a different mutation on the same protein. On the same protein. But it's and none not of us the Delta 32. That's and right. none of us know what it is. We don't know we what no it idea. does. We don't. So basically, he says, I'm trying to knock this out. He doesn't knock it out. He ends up mutating it in some different way. So these researchers are like, well, look, when people are homozygous for, for this one specific mutation, this other bad stuff potentially happens. But A, not only do these babies not, not have the mutation that these researchers are writing about, even though what they're writing is really important to know, they also probably don't have or because they don't have that mutation, they're probably not even HIV um, resistant. But we don't know. We we have no idea. We don't know what the mutation is that they have. 
And so and that's kind of what he wrote in the final summation. Yes, it would have been unconscionable if he had succeeded in altering CCR5 with the well-studied D32 deletion. But after pre-implantation screening, he identified that the edits were not the same as D32 and he went ahead anyway. And I think that's the really interesting and important a really interesting and important aspect of this story is that like not only did he do something in a rogue way without the scientific community or any international standards at play like this was a massive ethical violation and we've talked about this a lot on the show he also didn't even do the thing he set out to do but was like let's see what happens anyway yeah so he introduced a novel mutation we have no idea what the effects are And one thing that we didn't mention, I mean, you mentioned in your article and everybody else did, or most people did too, but I didn't mention yet in the summary, is that he did this on the germline, not the somatic line. So these things are going to be passed on if these children live to adulthood, if they decide to uh, procreate, their children will also have this edit to their genome. Yeah, so he has potentially introduced this mutation into the human gene pool. Whoa. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, I don't think that we should, you know, completely let this um, conversation get out of hand and become like this big, big bogeyman that says like, oh, my gosh, now that this one thing has gotten into the gene pool, which it hasn't yet. But if it does, all of humanity is doomed and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, I mean, this is the whole conversation around unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. We don't know what this thing does yet. And instead of testing it in mice or instead of, you know, going by the protocol and figuring it out the way that we have since like the dawn of modern science and medicine, he was like, nah, I'm just going to do it my way. Yeah. He just level jumped. He, yep. he, he bypassed all the regulatory protocols mm-hmm. and the scientific protocols and was a cowboy. And it really seems like he was just seeking fame, you know, for, oh, for sure. That. And I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be ageist or anything about it, but I mean, this guy's like 35 years old. He's like, you know, nobody really knew who he was before this happened. Now he's internationally famous, even though nobody's really heard of him in a while. And yeah, it seems like he was doing this for some sort of personal gain, expertise. I don't know. Maybe deep down he thought he was doing the right thing for this family. But all the villains think they're doing the right thing. Listen, this guy, this guy is... Especially Dr. Octopus. Yeah, he he (laughs) is a mad scientist, right? This is, Mm. if you define what a mad scientist is, this guy fits the bill. He he really had no right to be doing this. He did it on his own because he thought he was doing something good, but really, was, you know, there was definitely some seeking of of notoriety in there, and it's a shame. Uh, not to say, as you say, Carrie, you're very you're correct. We shouldn't catastrophize this, mm-hmm. and we should. It doesn't necessarily mean that we should never make germline changes to the genome, just that we have to do it freaking carefully so that we know what we're doing. Yeah, and or that we shouldn't do, you know, use CRISPR in human trial. Like, of course, like, we're not saying we shouldn't do any of this. We've just got to do it the right way and make sure that, like, the scientific community, the ethics committees are, like, in agreement about it. Yeah. No, personally, I think we should genetically engineer the heck out of humanity. I have no no qualms about that at all. There's a ton of genetic diseases that we can get, we can do away with. The thing is, there we've already identified lots of alleles, right? Lots of variants that are just better than other variants. Hey, if you have this version of the gene, you don't get cholesterol buildup in your arteries. Lucky yeah. you. Well, why can't we, why shouldn't we give everybody that good gene? You know, if we could do it safely, effectively, and, and predictably, you know, know the results. There's a the potential to improve health uh, is pretty tremendous, and I, I and yeah, shouldn't shy away from that. Disease. For which we don't really have any legitimate treatment. Yeah. Like, let's say somebody has Huntington's disease. That's a horrible, and it's a it's a dominant thing. Like, if we could wipe out Huntington's disease, that would be huge. And we very 
potentially could. But as you wrote in your article, there is a better standard of treatment to prevent transmission of HIV. From yeah, he did. He didn't even pick the right target. He did. Yeah, he didn't even like if he had picked an incurable genetic disease, that would yeah. be one thing. He picked. Yeah, if he had like cured Huntington's disease, people would have been like, "Uh oh, I'm pissed." But like, mm, let's see how this pans out. But yeah, you're right. He picked something where people are like, "Why would you do that? You could just use the treatments that are available." And to be clear. Always trying to anticipate emails. You can't eradicate a genetic disease because there's there's a spontaneous mutation rate, right? So even if we got rid of every person with Huntington's disease on the planet, it'd be back in a generation because there's a spontaneous mutation rate. It's going to develop spontaneously at a certain rate. Yeah, but, but it wouldn't but, be at the rate that it is right no, now. No, but you minimize it. Well, it yeah, depends. Yeah, yeah. It depends. You know, some diseases you pretty much are at the homeostasis level, right? You have the spontaneous mutation rate. Like, like, for example, if there are genetic diseases where if you have that disease, you're not having kids. You're not living long enough to have kids. Well, and that's but, why Huntington's is such a weird example because it's dominant. So you only have to have one copy of it to get Huntington's. And it doesn't show up until you're older than breeding age. All right. Which is tough. It's, it's, it, Huntington's is actually more weird than that because it's a trinucleotide repeat. Mm. That So it's not just a mutated gene. The mutation is this repetition of three nucleotides and that the number of repetitions determines the severity and how mm-hmm. early it presents. And it, and it undergoes what we call amplification, meaning that the number of repeats tends to increase in each generation. So you have the first person who may die with it and never even realize they had it. Yeah. Then their children get it at, at 70 and their children get it at 50 and then their children get it at 30 and then it dies out because it, uh-huh. they just get it too young. But even then, like there's there's the proband, right? There's the sort of the first person with the, with the mutation spontaneously, and then all of their descendants. Yeah. Uh, but but it does it does last for a while because it does tend to present late for a while until it amplifies to the point where the disease is so bad you're getting it even at a young age. But multiple generations can be sickened by it. At that yes. Point. Yeah. 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 But but you're right. But there are some diseases where it's just it's like it's a, it's a dominant disease. It, pre- it doesn't present to your older and yeah, it could it could exist in high numbers in the population. Mm. And then there are recessive genes. Like we all have multiple recessive genes for horrible diseases. The pro- the reason why you can't eradicate recessive diseases is because. Um, well, at least not clinically, because the the people who show it clinically is just the tip of the iceberg. This is the third time I think in this episode we're going to refer to the tip. Of the iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's only twenty five percent of the offspring that would get potentially if both parents have it. If yeah. po- both parents, but if it, both parents but, are heterozygous, but then mostly, would but most of the time only one parent has it. They passes it down to as you know fifty percent of their children, yeah. but they're just carriers. So most people are carriers passing it on to other carriers, and only when both parents have it and come together, do you get the disease? So even And even then, were, it's a low chance that you'll get the disease. Yeah, so it's just a very small percentage of all the mutations out there. So mm-hmm. there's no there's no way around the fact that there's always there's going to be a large amount of just background mutations in the human population. But still, when when you you know there are clusters of you know of disease in families and in lines, whatever in in certain populations and in certain nationalities, and we could certainly fix that. Yeah, Steve, can Jesus. they can they just copy the genetics of somebody else and swap out like the damaged genetics, and and there wouldn't be a, like a reason to think anything weird's going on. You mean like you mean? with CRISPR? Yeah, I mean that would be that would be what you would do. You would you just you would, rewrite it. You'd, yeah, you would you would you wouldn't 
change it to something novel, you change it to something known, the healthy version of that mm. protein. Like if you take somebody with sickle cell disease and you give them normal hemoglobin, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't sickle and that's a cure. So imagine you could cure sickle cell anemia. I mean, that mm-hmm. only genetic manipulation is going to really do that. But also remember that like one of those random things is that if you're a carrier for sickle cell, you might have a malaria resistance. And so it might be like, yeah, we should wipe out all of sickle cell. Yeah, we should, but we should also cure malaria. Exactly. Because let's say we wipe out all of sickle cell without thinking about that. We might get like a huge spike in malaria cases. Unless you're not living in Africa, then you probably don't, you don't need the sickle cell trait. Sure. If you're not not living in in, in an endemic area, right? But that's where it came from, which is why it's so much higher in African-Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. All right, Bob, you're going to tell us about lasers. Uh Lasers? Lasers. They're good for projecting advertising on the moon, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, the United States Navy announced recently the ship, which will be the first to have the powerful Helios anti-missile laser weapon. So, here's yet another development that has my inner 15-year-old jumping up and down, looking for somebody to high-five. This this will be an actual... There you go, Jay. This will be an actual vessel with a potent laser that can knock shit out of the sky. It's, <laughs> it's really, it's really impressive. Uh, Helios for the for you laser impaired uh, stands for High Energy Laser and Integrated Optical Dazzler with Surveillance System. Uh, this is it's Lockheed Martin's baby. Uh, the uh, the initial design is going to be sixty kilowatt. A laser and it's designed to grow into 150 kilowatts. Oh, it's going to grow. Uh, the, the Navy's plan is to fully integrate it into the combat system as well as a power system. Uh, so this is not going to be just like bolted on. This thing is going to be fully integrated, kind of like Star Trek's the M5 uh, computer that was integrated into oh, yes. the Enterprise and started uh, killing all the other families. It is great. But, I am great. But I digress. <laughs> Ronald Buxall, hmm. uh, the Navy's director of surface warfare, so uh, he said, we are making the decision to put the laser on our destroyers. It's going to start with Preble in uh, 2021. That's a ship. And uh, when we do that, that will now be her close-in weapon, and we now continue to upgrade. So, yeah, this is really, really a development I've been waiting for for, for quite a while. So the, 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 uh, the system that they have in place now is a phalanx. It's a Gatling gun, and that's, that's meant for their, their in-close. Like, holy crap, you know, this thing is getting close. Let's take this out. So like I said, initially it's going to be 60 kilowatts, uh, and it'll be, it'll be used for jamming or confusing or confusing or dazzling enemy surveillance, uh, sensors. And it, it could also be used to counter small boats and unmanned aerial vehicles. Um, so it's not going to be a, uh, an immediate full replacement for this, uh, close in phalanx that they have. But it's just this is a, the test bed that's going to be uh, improved. So for comparison, a 10 kilowatt laser can destroy drones, no problem. 30 kilowatts is enough to disable a truck. Um, so this initial one will be 60 kilowatts. Then uh, they they say that this will can be upgraded in place uh, up to 150 kilowatts, and so that's uh, much more powerful. I didn't get a real time frame for that, but I think uh, you know within a half decade that shouldn't be a problem. Eventually, though. The plan is something like a thousand kilowatts, also known as one megawatt, megawatt. a million megawatt. watts. 
Brian Clark, retired submarine officer and analyst with the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He said there's a viable path right now with the DOD's laser tech maturation program to get a one megawatt laser that can fit on a ship. So once you get past 500 kilowatts, you start getting a laser that can take down incoming cruise missiles, even supersonic ones. So that's one of the uh, – that's kind of like the end game. For, Bob, do you uh, think we could type of thing? Do you think we could ever get up to 1.21 gigawatts? Yeah, <laughs> uh, mm. it depends. Are you Time talking? Are you talking a pulse laser or continuous laser? Uh, pulse laser, we've already blown past that. Continuous laser, I don't think the optics can handle it. Um, uh, we would need something uh, far different. I, I actually read a treatment on what would happen to a, a laser that's a gigawatt, a continuous laser. And uh, it would basically Melt you know, fry, it would fry the optics. I mean, it wouldn't even get past the optics before it just obliterated itself. Um, but maybe they could have a series of uh, like five, like five hundred megawatt or hundred megawatt lasers that each shoot a beam that they combine the beam. Uh, but that, I digress again. Uh, so why is the Navy doing this? So I, I'm sure they have their fair share of inner fifteen year olds. Uh, but uh, developing lasers like that's good for uh, for other. Really good tactical reasons, uh, which I wasn't aware of. So anti-ship missiles are becoming increasingly fast and sophisticated, right? I mean, they're talking about uh, supersonic, hypersonic, ultrasonic. They're getting they're getting really intimidating at this point, beyond the, what they've been. And and there's no reason to think that in the future they're not going to be really really nasty. So historically, the plan to deal with with like say anti-ship missiles is to fire two ship missiles against. An attacking missile, right? So they, you fire the two missiles, take a quick look. If, the, if, if it didn't, if they didn't work, fire one or two more, right? But future attacks are going to be different. They, when they start thinking of some of these future altercations, uh, with like, with battleships and destroyers, they, they think that it's going to be more of saturation attacks. So what's going to happen is the enemy is just going to keep shooting more and more missiles. And their goal is to shoot more than you have to shoot back. And then once you've saturated your in, your close in uh, your missiles for those close attacks, then you're pretty you're all you're pretty much a, a sitting duck in many ways. Um, and but the, the the real downside to that is not only could you lose your ship, but that would be insanely expensive if you you know if they if they make you constantly shoot all of your missiles. I mean, you're talking you know millions of dollars for some of these missiles, and you, if you're just shooting them off willy nilly trying to save the ship, eventually. It's going to be just way too expensive. So as you can see, uh, a laser system could be invaluable in that scenario, right? I mean, you can, you're not going to run out of photons, um, but of course you ha- you can't run out of you can run out of ship's power. So you would need you, you know you would need enough power to back up that laser so that you could you can constantly be be using it um, in that role. So then the goal then would be to make the saturation uh, saturation attacks too expensive and untenable for the attacker. So that's kind of the goal. So you don't want to make it too expensive for the ship being attacked, but the people that are considering doing it to you um, until, of course, they have their own lasers. And then, well, you know, we'll see what happens when uh, when that happens. So, yeah, so uh, it's going to be, be a couple of years and they're going to they'll put the test bed on the Preble uh, destroyer. And I'm sure they're going to do tons of tests and see how it goes. And I think they'll probably quickly escalate up to or grow it into a 150 kilowatt laser. And then hopefully, um, I mean, I, I saw some predictions 2030 they could have they could have megawatt or, or even earlier. I heard some estimates even earlier for the, these megawatt class lasers. But I guess integrating it into the ships is going to be quite difficult. But uh, but we're on we're on the way. I mean, it's it, it, they will happen. 
eventually all of these ships will have 500 kilowatt at least or maybe megawatt lasers that can handle a lot of the the close in work but of course uh the missiles aren't going to be going away of course they're 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 too they're still too uh effective and uh so they'll be working in tandem for a while and they they may never actually go away but it's good to know that you have a laser a powerful laser that can handle uh you know these saturation attacks uh if they if, if need be so cool stuff cool technology anyway are the the military applications for these like 500 kilowatt megawatt lasers the only ones being developed or what's what would be a non-military application for them um non-military is uh is uh nanosats that that are that are uh, accelerated to uh uh you know near near uh, you know relativistic speeds maybe not oh, relativistic yeah. but you know maybe 10% the speed of light Five uh, percent the speed of light that can go conceivably to the you know Alpha Centauri you know within twenty years. So that's a, that's a non a fascinating non military application for for these uh, for these lasers. Um, it's you know continuous lasers that can that can do that. So that that's one. All right, cool. Hey, real quick, I just popped on the Australian Skeptics website and I saw a headline. Brit Hermes successful in defamation yeah. lawsuit. Yeah. That's great. Oh wow. Yeah, she messaged me the other day. Brent. I'm so happy for her. Fantastic! Oh, my text must have got lost in the mail, but yeah, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, she emailed the well, the science-based medicine crowd got the email. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, but she was trying to keep it under wraps for a while, but then it got announced, so now I think we could officially say it. Mm-hmm. So she she won her defamation. So she's the the former naturopath being sued by a naturopath for defamation, just as a just a bullying tactic to silence a critic. And she eventually, you know, won that lawsuit, which is great. And it was kind of in some ways a lot deeper than that. Like this woman apparently bought up multiple URLs that were different permutations of Brit's name and then was having them forwarded to like the Naturopathic Society's website. Yeah. Like it was a lot of really horrible kind of not just defamation lawsuit, but like weird bullying and like uh, it was terrible. I'm so glad that she came out on top of that. It's more prevalent than people know. I mean, you can easily hurt someone by using a search engine, just a search engine, Mm -hmm. because Google tracks your searches. You could, you could spam a search. You know, you can, you can, you know, do search on a term about someone so many times using software, of course, that it gets into the Google uh, search engine, meaning that other people will see it pop up. If they type your name in, they could see a derogatory statement about you pop up or a derogatory question. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's in, I mean, it's happened to people we know, and it's it's serious, and it's it could ruin your life. Somebody typing things into a search engine, just that. All right, well, Jay, it's who's that noisy time, Steve? Before I do, who's that noisy? You know, Nexus is right around the corner, and we have a, a, a what I would consider to be one of our best lineups that we've had. I love uh, the workshops. So I'm doing a, a workshop this year with Brian Wecht. I'm actually doing two with Brian. And Steve, you're joining us on one of these. We're going to be mm-hmm. talking about listing off the top animated films or you know, we might even go outside of just films. The best animation uh, that, we, that we think has had an impact on culture and society. And also, interestingly, we're going to discuss how the movies and books have shaped people's perception of critical thinking and, and skepticism and scientists, you know, like you have a weird scientist in a movie, you know, why, why are scientists hokey in movies? 
So we're going to get, dive into that. You know, it, it's going to be a cool workshop. And Steve, you're doing a workshop on uh, George. George and I are doing a workshop on uh, uh, stump the skeptic, where people can just give us any claim or experience or something and challenge us to to offer a skeptical explanation for it. And it's just a way of modeling what the process would be. Like, how would you go about evaluating something? Oh, I read this in the news. Should I believe it or not? Or as my friend says that they were abducted by aliens or whatever. And then we'll just go through like, well, all right, how do we skeptically evaluate that claim? We're going to have Carl Zimmer. We're going to have Mary Roach. Yeah. Paul Offit. Love Paul Offit. Heather is going to be there. Heather Berlin. David Gorski is going to be there. George Robb is going to be there. The SGU is going to be there. Um, you know, we're doing the uh, skeptical extravaganza this year. If you haven't seen it, we will be doing it again at Nexus. Now, the skeptical extravaganza is a science and skepticism comedy uh, skit show. And you know what? People love it. I'm just going to say it like it is. We, we go nuts. We, we, we do everything we can to make you laugh with all these different games that we play. And the audience gets involved in some of the things that we do. And it's a ton of fun. And, you, you know, it's, I think it's George at his best because he has to be funny and witty, but he also has to be uh, you know, running the show, which I love. I love George at the helm. So it's a great show. We really hope that you can make it this year. Go to NECSS.org. And if you do come this year, Steve has promised to dance with all SGU mm-hmm. uh, listeners. I haven't, but yeah, you could say that if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing I wanted to mention was you can become an SGU patron and support the work that we do. Um, there is a lot of things that we're involved with. It's not just the SGU. It's not just Nexus. It's not just the, all the other conferences that we attend. But we, we have a lot of things that we, that we do to support the skeptical community. And we want you to support us so we can keep doing the work that we do. Yeah, I'm really glad that we started using Patreon. It's been really helpful for me with, um, with my podcast, Talk Nerdy. It's been huge with uh, the SGU. It's such a cool community because people can log in and they can talk on the Discord server. They get access to ad-free shows and to all sorts of awesome member content. But I think even beyond all the perks and stuff, I like Patreon because it's such a cool platform for create like content creators. Yeah, definitely. You know, if you're not on it yet, here like just a quick and, and simple, this is how it works. You sign up and you pick how much money you want to spend to support all the artists that you care about in a month and you divvy it up based on who you want to send it to. So like different podcasters, different um, YouTubers, like whatever you want, poets, comic book artists, like there's all sorts of cool stuff on there. And then you have a cap. So Patreon like won't let you overspend. You decide what you want to spend your money on and then they cap you off based on what you tell them. So you're never going to end up being like, oops, I dropped, you know, X dollars when I only had half of that to spend. Um, it's really cool. It like keeps you honest with yourself. And I think it's sort of the future. Like yeah. it, it really a- is going to be how we support and promote content in the future. If you're interested, you can go to patreon.com forward slash skeptics guide and check out our membership awards. Rewards? Awards, Kara? What do, you, what do we call them? Uh, rewards, I think. Yeah, they're rewards. It's yeah. rewarding. It's rewarding, right? <laughs> yeah, I think we're rewarding the membership. We're not giving like awards Tr- Trophies, to yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you could also go to Talk Nerdy, uh, Patre- what is it, patreon.com forward slash Talk Nerdy. Yeah, it's like all the same for all of them. And the cool thing too about Patreon is that it'll recommend other users, like other 
content provider. So if you're like, oh, I love SGU and oh, I listen to Talk Nerdy, you'll start to see other podcasts and other like YouTubers and stuff like that that are in line because other people are supporting multiple people. So there's an algorithm to tell you who else they support. And so you actually discover really cool stuff on Patreon too. Okay. Now I want you to prepare yourselves because uh, it's a little mind-blowing this week, okay? Last week I played this noisy. And it goes on. What do you think? I mean, it there's it certainly has a familiar sound to it, correct? Yeah. Yeah, the yep. thing you find yeah, in the like mad Jacob's ladder kind experiment. Of thing. That's what Jim Kelly thought. Jim Kelly yeah. wrote in and said, "Howdy, I think it's either a Tesla coil or a power station thingy." And uh yeah, I agree with that. Um it isn't. It certainly does sound like that though. Okay. And Jason S wrote in and said, "Long-time listener and double sponsor, a uh, member at Patreon, I think he means double sponsor, meaning he might still be on the the uh, classic or the the legacy membership and on Patreon. I, I will email you, Jason. We'll, we'll talk. I'll help you clear that up. He said, I may be wrong. It happens a lot, but this week's noisy sounds a lot like the staple of movie villains laboratories at Jacob's Ladder. Yeah. I mean, same, pretty much, you know, same thing as uh, – not the same thing as a Tesla coil, but same kind of noise, you know, that electrical noise uh, – snapping in the air that's not correct mm-hmm. uh, but it certainly does sound like that and then steve fleming wrote in and said hi jay from the land down under looking forward to seeing you guys and the rest of the team when you visit melbourne australia in december for the conferences um you know we're going to new zealand and um australia for the conferences coming up this november december he said he already has tickets cool so the noisy sounds like a high voltage microwave oven transformer it isn't it isn't because this has nothing to do with electricity <laughs> wow. I know. Listen to that. Maybe I'll play it after I tell you what it is. What is this? What is this? This came from a video. It was recorded inside a Beach 99 airplane. So now that I've told you that it is something to do with an airplane, what mm-hmm. is it? Let me play it for you yeah. again and you play guess. It again. It's in an airplane. Prop plane. In the Probably. jet or bugs hitting hitting the propeller. No. Uh, but okay. it does have something to do with the propeller. Listen to this. Never heard about this. So the sound you hear is the propellers having their RPMs slightly out of sync and slowly being matched by hand. Many multi-engine aircraft, this is what uh, Brendan Flynn wrote in. He said, many multi-engine aircraft have a system you can turn on to automatically match the speeds and even p- positions of the blades. It's called a synchronizer or or a synchrophaser. However, this one was disabled at the time. Not having your props synced is considered bad form and incredibly annoying to anyone else in the airplane with you. So I guess if the <laughs> RPMs of the of the propellers are not spinning exactly at the same speed, you get that dissonant noise. And let me I'll play it really quick one more time, just so you can now you fully know what it is. Wow! Imagine being in an airplane. You know, for hours hearing that crazy noise. Yeah, that's I wouldn't annoying. like that at all. But no. man, when I heard that, I was like, "This is so cool!" Just by itself, it's a cool no one idea. Will get it. But no, no, I mean, I'm not even. I, I like it when people win. It's fun, but it, it certainly sounds like electricity. Uh, I just, I just find that amazing. Again, and this amazing theme I have with with who's that noisy? That man, bacon sounds like rain. Sounds like propellers needing to be synced. Sounds like a Tesla call. You know, it's like it's just. <laughs> It's weird. It's just funny how many things sound like other things. 
Yeah. Bacon sounds like rain. Yeah. It does. It does. You've seen <laughs> it. it. I, I saw a TED talk on it. You can't tell the difference. It's, if I tell you it's rain, you believe it. If I tell you it's bacon frying, you believe it. <laughs> That's amazing. It's, okay. it's true. Okay. So we have a new noisy sent in by a listener named Cal Landon. And uh, this one, I'm telling you, I love this. I love this. This is very cool. There's no clue for this one. I'm just going to play it. There you have it. It's a noise. <laughs> well, it is that. I've, I've played it for you. <laughs> and it was sent in by a listener named Cal Landon. And there's no clues. And I need you to tell me what it is. And I, you know what? I want you to get it right this week. Anyway, um, listen, email me directly. I'm the only one that gets these emails. You can email me at wtn at skepticsguide.org. If you had heard anything cool this week, which a lot of you did, and also you can email me your guesses. And one person, when I last week when I said, hey, guys, and you could just write me to say, how you doing? One person wrote in. One person. And they said, how you doing, Jay? And I wrote back. I said, you know what? You're the first person that, that sent this. So you're going to get something special. So I sent them a picture of me and Bob on a roller coaster-like ride making crazy faces. <laughs> and Bob knows the picture, right, Bob? Yeah, of course. It's, it's probably one of the best pictures oh, of me and Bob of all time. And I just thought, hey, thanks for you know being cool. And uh, here's a picture for you. And the guy liked it. It was very funny. So thank you, Steve. And, and thank <laughs> right. you, Jesus. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jay. All right. We're going to do just one quick email. This comes from Blake Hutchings from the UK. And Blake writes, love the show. I'm a longtime listener that has been listening from the very beginning. I think he means from the beginning of the show, not the beginning of when we were publishing it. Something caught my attention in your recent episode number 724. While talking about life on other planets, oh Jay said that Mars was our closest neighbor. Steve made a correction by stating that Venus is in fact closer. But the fascinating truth is that neither is correct. In fact, the closest planet to Earth for 46% of the time is Mercury. Venus is closest 31% of the time and Mars 13% of the time. This is counterintuitive, but true. My source for this claim is another podcast that I listen to regularly, the BBC's More or Less podcast, which is a great show all about fact-checking statistics. And then he gives a link. I thought you might find this to be an interesting topic to talk about on the show. Um, so Blake is correct in his statistics, but wrong, I think, in his overall statement. I wrote him back to say it's actually, you know, it is interesting. I did. This is one of those things like in the editing when when this came up, I'm like, all right, well, what we said was technically true. We didn't really give a complete answer. So and I was I always debate with myself, should I break in and say the, you know, the caveat or just let it slide and see if we get any emails. And, and and this time I let it slide and we got an email. But it's an interesting discussion. So the problem is that the term closest is ambiguous, right? And I thought of at least four ways you could interpret. If you just ask the question, what's what planet is closest to the Earth? Or what's the closest planet to the Earth? You could interpret it the way Blake did, which is which planet is closer to the Earth for the majority of the time. Um, and it actually makes sense that it's Mercury because if you think about it, obviously at any given point in time, planets are, are different distances depending on where they are in their orbit. When Venus or Mars or Mercury is on the opposite side of the sun from the Earth, they're a lot farther away than when they're on the same side. And so since Mercury is the closest planet to the sun, 
it varies the least. You know, when, when Mars and Venus are on the other side of the sun, they're farther away from the Earth than Mercury. So that's why the Mercury can be closer to the Earth for the major, for the plurality of the time, 46% of the time. But that's only one way to interpret closest. Another way is to say which planet is closest right now, right? At any, or at any given point in time. Uh, we were not referring to that, but there's two other ways that actually in which Venus is closer. One is which planet gets closer to the Earth than any other planet, right? And that's Venus. The close approach between Venus and Earth is closer than any other planet to Earth. And in fact, it's closer than any other two planets, even closer than Mercury and Venus ever get to each other. To me, that's the most important one. But also, and that's what I was talking about. Which, no, it's actually Venus is the closest close, planet. Yeah. It's the one that comes closest to Earth. But you could also talk about the average distance. And Venus has the, the, the shortest average distance from Earth of any planet also. So Venus wins in those two ways, but Mercury does win in kind of a weird way, in my opinion, just the percentage of time that it's closer. Uh, and then Venus, Mercury, and Mars are the closest planet at any at different points in time. Jupiter is too far away to ever be the closest planet to Earth. So even when Earth and Jupiter of are course. at their closest, it's still farther away than all the other inner, inner planets, you know, because Jupiter is just so much farther out than any of the you know, Mars or inward. But thanks for, for provoking that discussion, Blake. Yeah, it's That's important to define these things a little more tightly, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I get the lesson here is if there, you know, this is fun, and but the lesson ambiguity is ambiguity invites pedantry. Yeah, that's true, and Blake definitely gets the pedantic email of the week, no question. But it's that science requires uh, precise definitions of terms, and often we need what we call an operational definition, meaning that if you go through this process, you get a specific answer. You know, or it has to be like by definition, you know, like this is the definition of this means this specific thing. All right, guys. Well, let's move on with science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items. Two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. For science or fiction this week, we have a special guest, Gary Loveland. Gary, welcome to the Skeptics Guide. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Gary, what happened? Let's tell everyone how you found your, your way onto this show. I'll set the stage. So I'm looking at the SGU subreddit. It's just forward slash SGU. You know, I try to keep up with everything that's going on there. And people were talking about, you know, our patrons that come on, that that we allow to come on and be guest rogues with us and do a whole show. You know, and they're having an interesting conversation. And it's really cool for me to read stuff like that because it just gives me insight into what people think. But there was a conversation and they were like, yeah, you know, the, those guys, those people like are paying to get on. And what do you think about that? And, you know, what do you think about the quality of that they've been doing? Now, personally, you know, I... I think everyone's done a great job. Like we loved it. So it's, we've always have a really good time when we have guests on the show. But then Gary, so he's on Reddit and he said something along the lines of, you know, how does a poor guy like me get on the SGU? And, and I had a moment where I'm like, I, I totally related. You know, I'm like, shit, I feel, I feel bad. You know, so, I, so I wrote him back on the subreddit. I don't feel bad. And I said, 
I don't remember exactly what I, I said. Something like, "Hey, you know, I'm offering to get you on the show for science or fiction. You want to do it? Email me at this email address." And he emailed me. So, what what was it like from your side of the fence? Uh, it was just shocking. I was like, wasn't expecting that at all. I was just skulking around Reddit, making random con- comments, and then all of a sudden, I just said, "Oh, when they're gonna have on a?" I think I said like four uneducated squad like me on. Then when you when you uh, responded to me, I was shocked. Yeah, Jay, do you? Do you skulk around Reddit too? Like, are you usually commenting and stuff on our subreddit? I, I mean, I'll, I'll comment when I need to. Like, I'm not, you know, people are having conversations and stuff and I'm, you know, I'll, I answer, right? If people like ask questions or if something comes up that I can help, you know, every once in a while something will come up and I'm like, oh, how can I not respond? Like, I, I have the answer, you know, like that type of thing. That's but I read, I, I read everything. That. I'm wow. a huge Reddit fan. I love Reddit. Like I am addicted. Yeah, addicted. I have like fifty subreddits I'm into, and it's really seriously. Sick. I had no idea. I I I hate to say I, I'm not a big fan of Reddit, but it's not because I'm not a big fan of Reddit. I just think like <laughs> there's a lot of great stuff on Reddit, but the worst of the worst is also on Reddit. Oh, you so, no, get that, everything. That's not true. Yeah. 4chan has the worst of the worst. Well, oh, okay. yeah, of course, 4chan, 4chan has the worst yeah. of the worst. But I well, yeah, I got to be honest with but you. But you're not right? hanging out on 4chan, are you? No, not at all. Not anymore. I didn't no. Think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the point, the point is like the, the subreddits are communities and communities are different in the real world and they're different on Reddit. Like I, I love the subreddits. On, most of the subreddits I'm on, I love them. Yeah, like, the I, ones I, you're on. I'm just saying there's some pretty horrible stuff on Reddit. Yeah, oh, that's there true. is. Yeah. There is. But, you know, it's a, it's a viable, um, amazing platform. Like it just – it's powerful and it's yeah. – it's, Real time and, you know, it's great. I mean, God, I'm on the Star Trek one. I'm on Star Wars one. I'm on the science fiction one. I'm on the sci-fi one. You know I mean? I'm on all of my hobbies. Wow. Like my fifth circle of hell right there. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, do they have a fifth circle of hell one, Jay? <laughs> I'm sure they do. It's called 5chan. Yeah. Gary, you on Reddit a lot? Like, do you see some of the crazier stuff on there? Yeah, I'm on there quite a bit. My daughter actually turned me on to it. She's all, you should uh, go on this one. I can't remember which was the first one I went on, but she's like, you would fit right in. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, that's so cool. She pre-screened it for you. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, the whole thing is funny because, you know, the, as the show has evolved over the last 14 years now, I mean, we always wanted to be a an outlet for skeptics, right? Not just Not just us. But, of course, 14 years ago, the community was smaller. And to us, that meant, like, people that we knew who were skeptical activists who are now, you know, people that the community has grown. They're like the recognizable people. And, but now there's hundreds of thousands of other people. We obviously can't have a hundred thousand listeners come on the show. So the, uh, patron idea was one way to just occasionally have on another voice, just a listener of the show, get a different perspective. Uh, I think it's worked out really, really well. I mean, we wouldn't continue to do it if it wasn't working out well. Um, and all the people who have been on so far, I thought have done a great job. And the feedback has been, you know, pretty much universally positive. So, Gary, Gary, tell us a little bit about yourself, though. So, what do you do? What's your job? Uh, let's see. I live in Las Vegas. I work in a warehouse at one of the hotels on the Strip. Uh, I'm 51 years old. I have three daughters. Next week will be my 27th wedding anniversary. Cool. cool. And how, how long have you been listening to the SGU? I was trying to remember today how long it's been. It's been years. You're still still listening, huh? <laughs> well, it's the first podcast I download every week. Oh, that's, that's awesome! I often so, wonder, like, on average, how long does somebody stick with the show? Because it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't bother me if people like would listen for two or three years and then say, "Okay, I pretty much learned the whole skeptical thing and then move on." That's fine, but you know, 
I mean, obviously, I'm thrilled if people can stick with us for years and years. That's great. Well, we we come, you know, Steve. We also we're a community all by ourselves yeah, at this that's, point. That's what we're, <laughs> we're trying to be, anyway. Yeah. So, Gary, it's funny. I had no idea how old you were, and still didn't right up until you said you're 51. And for some reason, like when I'm on Reddit, I just assume everybody's 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> hey, my daughter's like, no, they're all old guys like you. Yeah, I'm starting to think. I really do think now that like there's like a heavy block of 50 and 60 year old people on there. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do this. All right, here we go. We have a theme this week. Oh, for Christ's sake. Da. The theme is glaciers. What? It no. Seems pretty random. <laughs> what do you guys know about glaciers? I'm pretty sure they're made shit. of ice. This will be the slowest. Oh, shit, Kara, no spoilers. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. There's three little interesting things about ice, about uh, sure. glaciers. Here we go. Item number one. During the most recent glacial period, glaciers covered 64% of the land on Earth. Item number two, deep glacier ice turns blue as it ages. And item number three, glaciers contain about 75% of the fresh water on Earth. Gary, you're our guest, so you get the honor of going first. <laughs> the honor. <laughs> the honor. The privilege. I hope you go last and just go with Evan. <laughs> yeah. Now you're talking. If you're psychic, you can go with that one, yeah. <laughs> okay, the first one about this. During the last glacial period, the ice or the glaciers covered 64% of the Earth. I believe that one science. Second one, glaciers science. That leads to the last one, 75% of the freshwater. And I'll say that one's the fiction. Okay, Jay. All right, so the uh, this the first one here about sixty four percent of the land on Earth. So this is when the most recent glacial period was covering sixty four percent of the land. So I am um, I don't I'm not sure I'm believing this one just because I have a recollection of like seeing a picture of at some point. I don't know if it was the most recent glacial period though, and uh, you know, and I'm not even sure how many there have been. I'm sure there's been a lot. Um, so I'll come back to that one. I just want to go through these other ones quick. So this second one here about the uh, the ice turning blue, I think that is science. I have seen tons of blue glacier ice in my in my viewing, especially when I'm on Reddit. And this last one about glaciers uh, containing 75% of the fresh water, I also believe that one is factual. And it's interesting to, to think that what that number would be during a, a glacial period, that number might go up to 95% or even more. Imagine that. I think the, the one here about the, the last, last glacial period was covering 64% is the fiction because I think it was much less than that. Okay, Evan? Am I allowed to get a clarification on the most recent glacial period, Steve? Depends on what it is. Well, uh, my understanding, it was 20, 25,000 years ago. Am I off the base there? Yeah, I don't see any reason to tell you that. It doesn't really affect anything. Okay. 64% of the land. So my understanding is, the if I'm right, the last glacial progress, which started to retreat, what, 25,000 years ago, did push land down as far as, I think, places like Texas. Uh, they stretched pr- down mm. there pretty far. So if you think of all of Canada and Gulf, and you think of all of just about all of the United States – and it was happening, if it happened basically to that latitude all around the planet, that would be about 64, that would be about two-thirds of the land. So I think that one's right. 
Deep Glacier Ice turning blue as it ages. Why? Uh, you know, it's not like the water is blue. So it, it forms minerals or something is in there turning it blue or some other color. Uh, it may not be blue. It could be green. could be something else. I don't know about this one. The 75% of fresh water on Earth. Mm, yeah, that's a, you know, I don't know. There's, uh, the glaciers are big. I mean, these are, these are miles high. In a few, in a, well, a mile high, I think, in in certain places. That's that's a pretty good volume of water. Could it be seventy five percent? I think it could be. I'll say it's the blue one. I'll say uh, glacier ice turning blue as it ages is fiction. Okay, Kara, they're all split up so far. Jeez. Yep. Okay, so Jay thinks that it's not sixty four percent. Evan mm-hmm. thinks it doesn't turn blue, and Gary thinks it's not seventy five percent of the fresh water. Correct. Okay. All right. So I'll, I'll go in order. 64% of the land on Earth. So just the land, though, the continents. But still, like the land's pretty spread out. Like there's a lot, but there's a lot of land in Africa. A lot. Oh, you're obsessed with Africa these days, Karen. I know. And South <laughs> yeah. America, there's a lot of land. So I feel like even if those two things weren't covered, that wouldn't be 64%. I feel like that's half the land. I could be wrong. Maybe the North Pole with like Russia, all of Europe, all of Asia. I feel like that's half though. But also this was so long ago that, well, it wasn't that long ago. The continents kind of look the same, right? Really? I don't know. That seems like, I feel like I've seen drawings of like ice ages and stuff and they weren't covered in ice. Like there was more ice, but I feel like the globe wasn't covered in ice. So that's why I'm kind of leaning towards Jay on this. But let me see if there's other ones. I think, um, I know that there's blue glacier ice. I've seen it. And I think you see it when outside ice calves off. And sometimes you see it deep in cores, which would mean it's older, right? So maybe that one's science. I don't know. The freshwater one is throwing me because I'm like, aren't glaciers over salt water? Like, ugh. But then I'm like, there's not that much fresh water on Earth, right? Like, if you really think about it, salt water is the oceans. So fresh water is like underground, and then it's just like in lakes and rivers and stuff. And if you added all those up, it's not that much. So maybe 75% of the fresh water being caught up in glaciers is actually not as much as it sounds because it's not that much water in general. So I don't know. I feel like Jay made the most compelling case. I'm going to GWJ on this wow. one. Okay, Bob. It's amazing how in the course of 10 minutes <laughs> um, – to go got last? Clean zero information. <laughs> yeah, all over the place. At first, they all seem great, all good. Now they all seem bad. Um, so, uh, all right. Well, let's see. 64% land on Earth, uh, the most recent glacier period. I'm not sure. Uh, um, Bob, hurry up. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, that that seems fine to me, but I could be I could be off. Um, but I'm going to go with it anyway. The third one, 75, 75% of the fresh water. Wait, doesn't Lake Superior and the Great Lakes have the vast majority of fresh water? Oh, that's going to kill me. But the one that's really getting to me is this deep glacier ice turning blue as it ages. I think I think you may be trying to trick us here. Sure, everyone's seen that that blue color coming off of some some glaciers, but I don't think that's a factor of the aging of the ice. Is that isn't it the depth of the ice? The more the more ice the light goes through, the more the the other colors are scattered out, and you see the blue, just like why the sky is blue. I think it's a factor. It's a it's a, it's a deals with the the depth of the ice and not the age of the ice. Um, I, I can't imagine, you know, maybe the compression of the ice at the bottom, it does something, um, but it's, I mean, it's it's got to be all about the light and what's filtered out and how much ice it's going through. So that one's kind of trumping uh, the, the other concerns I have. 
Um, so I'll, I'll say the um, the blue ice is fiction. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have a good spread. So let's start with uh, number three. Uh, glaciers <laughs> contain about seventy five percent of the fresh water on Earth. Oh my God. Gary, you think this one is the fiction, and this one is. Did he sweep us? Science. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yes, okay. this was science. Sorry, what Gary. What about the Great Lakes, Steve? Yeah, but Bob, you know how much water there is, like, for example, in the glaciers in Antarctica? That's three miles deep yeah. of ice. It's so, a lot. There's a lot right, of glacier miles. ice. Yeah, yeah the what Great Cara- Lakes cover the planet with water? I mean, it's like. No. They, no. They, they, if it was really thin, I guess, anything could do that if it was. <laughs> True, but I, like, but I think the deep. I think the depth. I just remember there's an impressive amount of fresh water in the Great Lakes. Amazing oh, is, amount. But I didn't pick. I didn't pick it, so I feel good about it. <laughs> well, the way the way that the reason why this is true is like you know you got to think of this as uh, accumulation of snowfall. Like it it falls, it stays there, and then when more falls on top, it compresses it down and pushes it and pushes it, and it becomes you know solid. Bricks yeah. of ice. Oh, that's yeah, why that it's up. fresh water. Yes. I'm such an idiot. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, oh, it's yeah. all salt water. <laughs> no, no, yeah, glaciers are all fresh works, water Jack. because because salt water doesn't freeze, right? Yeah. Well, I thought. Well, well at a really, much much really lower cold. temperature. Much yeah. lower temperature. Yeah. Would freeze. Yeah, but the glaciers zero. are basically fresh water. All right. Okay. Well, let's move on to number two. Oh boy. Deep glacier ice turns blue as it ages. Bob, you think this one is a fiction? And Evan, you think this one is a fiction? So this is interesting. Bob, you came up with a very interesting uh, interpretation that, yeah, it may look blue, but that's just a, a function of the amount of ice, not the age of the ice. But this one is science. Yep. Sorry, guys. It is completely a function of the age of the ice. Really? <laughs> what do you what's, think is what, happening? What reaction? What's going on? Yeah, what's going on? Yeah. What do you think's happening to ice as to glacial ice as it ages? I gave you is a little like bit bit of a hint by saying it's deep. It's compacting. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's like just like I said before. Like what happens is, as it gets, you know, as the uh, the well, the molecules are lining up and they're basically pushing in in the, in the most uniform way that they can. Right, Steve? Like they're they're no. getting as solid as they can. It's close, but it's not. It's not the crystalline structure of the ice that's changing. It's squeezing out the air bubbles uh-huh. in between the ice. And so. those air bubbles get squeezed out progressively over time. And the denser the ice uh, becomes, the more it absorbs red. And therefore, oh. it reflects blue and looks blue. Cool. Which, mean, which means yeah. it is blue. Yeah. Yeah, which right. means it I, is blue. But yeah, right, because no. don't you always see blue like deep underneath stuff? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's not it's not a it's not an artifact of the amount of of the whatever mm. the, the the transmission of the light. It is blue. It's because it's, a, it's old physically because it just the, I guess the structure of ice with that with, well, with uh, that's compacted without any air bubbles in it. It absorbs red light. That's it. That's a little interesting fact. Okay, okay that, well, all that means nice. that during the most recent <laughs> glacial period, glaciers covered sixty four percent of the land on Earth is the fiction because the real figure is half that, only thirty two percent. About a third. So I think, Kara, your, your sort of estimate of what, what did the Earth look like and the land was, was the closest. But it's actually, it was actually only a third. Now, the, the different glacial periods, you know, the, the glaciers got different distances south, right? Some went a little bit farther south than the others. So some may have been a little bit more than that. But I don't think any of them in the, in the, in the current ice age, I don't think any of them got to 64%. Of course, at some point, if you go back 
billions of years, there was snowball Earth. You know, the whole Earth was a glacier. But um, so just a clarification on terminology, because you guys were kind of all over the place on this. We are actually in an ice age right now. Ah. An ice age is uh, is a period that where there are glacial periods. So during an ice age, there are glacial and interglacial periods. So right now we're in an interglacial period in an ice age. Does that make sense? Yeah, so yeah it's going to come, it's gonna come crush us again. Yeah, know, so the last 10, glacial period years. ended, Evan, 15,000 years ago. 15? Mm. Okay. It's when it ended, yeah. Uh, remember the, the younger dry ass, remember all that stuff after the ice age, when the ice melted, and then it wiped out all the megafauna in North America, but it could have been a, a meteor impact, but they're not sure. But anyway, that was like 12,000 years ago when the, uh, the megafauna died off. Right. Yeah. So that was the, the that was at the end of the most recent glacial period, not ice age, but glacial period. It was still in the ice age. So and there have been uh, what would my reference say seven glacial advances and retreats in the current ice age over the last six hundred and fifty thousand years. So oh. another one will happen, likely to happen. Yeah. This is another one of those <laughs> items or or topics where having a six year old child like helps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of right because I mean it's one of those things, like people think they know about glaciers, but do you really know about them? I mean, do you know about them in detail? And this, of course, is even really superficial. This is not obviously like somebody who's an expert on glaciers he has a tremendously deeper knowledge about it. Um, so, so, Gary, so, you survived. You survived yeah, your first science yeah, fiction. Gary. Yeah, I was hoping to retire with a win, but yeah, no, <laughs> most, most people most people don't win their first time out, especially going first. It is oh, yeah. it is especially yeah, challenging. Most people and George Rob don't win. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Poor George. Has George never won? No, no. no, he he won twice, I think. Once or twice, yeah. Oh, okay. In the 14 years we've been yeah. <laughs> interacting with him. Well, Gary, thank you. I just want to thank you. Um, you know, it was cool meeting you in, in the in the online way. Mm-hmm. We'll probably never meet in person unless you go to a conference. I want to very badly. Next time in wait, Vegas. Wait. Right? Yeah, we might, you know, I'd, I'd love to make it to SciCon uh, 2020 if that's possible. That'd be cool. Yeah, and they might come to LA sometime soon-ish. So if we work that out, we're pretty close. I was just in Vegas like a week or two ago. Yeah, yeah. Psycon is in is in Las Vegas, and uh, we're we're sort of building up a list of requests to go to LA, and so eventually it'll reach critical mass, and we'll have to go. Uh, but for this year, we're, our dance card is kind of booked because we're going to Australia, New Zealand. So that's kind of sucking up all of our travel time, in addition to our usual stuff, Nexus and Dragon Con. So, yeah, so we won't be making it out there this year. But but next year is, is, is very likely, actually. All right. Before we end this segment, Evan, you're going to give us a quote. First, you make people believe they have a problem, and then you sell them the solution. That's how advertising works. Every snake oil salesman knows that. That was written by Oliver Marcus Malloy, who is a writer— you guys ever heard this name before? No. He wrote, he has a best-selling trilogy, Bad Choices Make Good Stories. Mm-hmm. Downloaded over 100,000 times on various online platforms. And the- and that's absolutely true. We say that all the time, you know, that basically you, f- you create a fake problem and you sell the solution to that problem. That's, that is the snake oil industry right there in a nutshell. Oh, yeah. Gary, thanks for joining us for Science or Fiction. Thanks for having me. It's been awesome. You got it, man. Thanks, everyone, for joining me this week. Sure, man. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Whatever, Steve. Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. 
Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible.